in three, two, one. With a coaching career with over 400 victories, Coach Jim Johnson's journey is a testament to the impact of positive leadership and the magic of believing in one's dreams. Yet it's not the number of wins that define his legacy, but rather a moment of pure humanity and inspiration that captured the nation's heart back in February 2006. In a decision that would forever change the lives of many, Coach Johnson chose to play Jason McElwin, affectionately known as J-Mac, an autistic team manager in Greece Athena High School's final home game. J-Mac's extraordinary performance, scoring 20 points in just over four minutes, is a story of courage, inclusivity, and the spirit of sportsmanship that transcends the game of basketball. As we dive into this conversation, we're set to explore Coach Johnson's philosophy on leadership, the importance of teamwork, and how to turn dreams into reality. So whether you're a sports enthusiast, a leader looking to transform your team's dynamics, or someone chasing a dream, this episode promises insights and inspiration that could very well change your perspective on what it takes to achieve success and make a difference. Join me now for my conversation with Coach Jim Johnson. Well, hi, Jim. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Thank you, Mike. I'm looking forward to it. Should have a good time. Now, where are we speaking to you from today, Jim? So I live in a suburb of Rochester, New York, called Greece, like the country. It's the largest suburb. We have about 90,000 people, and I grew up in the community. When I was growing up, there were three high schools. There's now four, and I actually went to one of the high schools. In my last 27 years in education, I was the head coach at the other two. So I hit my whole hometown for most of my life. That's awesome. Actually, that's a great segue and a good place to start. And I want to come back to your education and how you got there. But it was on the night of February 15th, 2006. And the bleachers at Greece Athena High School, where you went to school in Rochester, New York, were packed with students. You're full. You're at the game. And that game became very momentous in your personal career and in the lives of literally millions throughout the globe. And maybe give us a brief summary of what happened. People might remember this particular incident. Yeah. We're going to put the information in the videos in the show notes so that they can see it. Why don't you give us a quick summary and then we'll come back. Yeah, to I can't believe, Michael, it'll be 18 years on February 15th. Crazy. But I had a young man in my program. His name was Jason McElwain. The world knows him more as J-Mac. J-Mac. Uh, a name that I tagged him because I couldn't pronounce his last name. Unfortunately, he liked it. But anyways, Jason is on the autism spectrum. And when he was in high school, he was very small in stature. But he tried out for in our basketball program three consecutive years, never made the team, but served as our team manager. So when he came out his senior year, he was still very small in stature, although it's funny. Now he's about 6'2", 170 pounds, but his senior high school, he's like 5'9", 115 pounds. So he wasn't very big and not very strong, not really much of an athlete, but just had a big heart. So I told him, because of his loyalty and commitment to the program, that I was going to give him a uniform for our final home game, which we call senior night, where we honor the seniors. And I did that. And senior night came, and it was really cool to see him being honored, because he would always come in a white shirt and black tie for every game as a manager. But now he's down in number 52. It was way too big. He was swimming in it, but he didn't care. And it was really cool to see him embrace his parents before the game in uniform. Well, after three quarters of the game, my dream was I wanted to get Jason in so he could score a basket. I thought if he could score a basket, that's something he would cherish for the rest of his life. So I actually put him in with just over four minutes ago, and the place erupted. 
And we had a pretty good student body foul, and they called themselves the six men. But when he walked on the floor, Jason, for the first time, Michael, our student body gave him a standing ovation. But what Jason and I didn't know, one of our parents had made all these pictures of Jason's face and put them on paint sticks, and they gave him the student body. So that when he walked on the floor, they show all these paint sticks. And I get so overwhelmed with emotion. I'm usually pretty macho at a basketball game. I sit down and I start crying. So, well, he's now in his first varsity basketball game. First time he touches the ball, he has a three-point shot from the right corner. He lets it go. The crowd kind of stands in anticipation. It misses by six feet. And as I kid people that I know you're not supposed to pray in the public schools in the U.S., but I was praying, dear God, please help him get one basket. Well, the next possession, he actually has a much shorter shot from about 10 feet. And this time he lets it go and it hits the rim. So I'm like, all right, God's starting to listen. We're getting closer. Dialing it in. Yeah. Well, the third possession... He shoots another three, this time from the right wing. And when he lets it go, magic. It goes in, and the place just erupts. And I'm thinking, God must be a basketball fan. Not only has Jason scored, he's got a three-pointer. I can't get any better than this, right? For the next few minutes, I kid people that Jason's idol was the late Kobe Bryant, the great Los Angeles Laker. In fact, Jason used to sign his name, Jason J. Mac Kobe McElwain. That's how he used to sign his name. That's awesome. So... He starts making shot after shot, and he actually finishes the game by making a three-pointer like two feet behind the arc. In fact, I started yelling, Jason, don't shoot from there. You're going to ruin the moment. And he swishes it. And for those of your listeners familiar with the movie Rudy, that's what I thought I was living in a basketball game. The whole bleachers just fell up, ran out on the floor. Players ran out on the floor. And our players put him up on their shoulders. He was the hero of the game. And at that point, I had no idea how many points he had scored. And our public address announcer says, the leading scorer for Greece Athena tonight, J-Mac with 20 points, including six three-pointers. And I'll say two things that were really special. I wrote a book about it called The Coach in a Miracle. And what people didn't know is that was the greatest experience I ever had in coaching. But two sidelights. Number one, the first half of the season was the most difficult season I ever had. We had a team divided. We had a lot of parent issues. And it was really a struggle. In fact, I nearly resigned. And then the other thing is, at that point in my career, I'd been fairly successful. You measured from wins and losses. We had a lot of winning seasons. But I had that big stumbling block as a coach. And I wonder, some of your listeners, you know, you have that big goal and it seems like you never can get to it. Well, for us, it was winning our local championship, which we call the section by championship. And I had taken six teams to semifinals, never making the finals in my first 19 years as a head coach. Well, after Jason's magical game, then we get all this publicity. I mean, we're getting calls from all over the world. And I'm actually just taking calls. They had a sub for me for eight consecutive school days. Well, the crazy thing is, we ended up winning our first Section 5 championship in front of a sold-out arena. And I'll say two things. There's so many lessons, but one that was so powerful because the team had really been divided. What was so cool, Michael, is that I never asked the four players on the floor to pass Jason the ball. Out of their own hearts, they decided they were going to shine the light on him and pass the ball to him every possession. And he shot. In fact, I still see Jason. I kid him all the time. Jason, I'm still looking for your first assist. You never passed the ball once. Good feedback. That's good. And the final thing I want to say, I brought up Kobe Bryant. Well, about seven months after that game, Jason's at the ESPY Award for the greatest sports moment of the year. And one of the other finalists for the award was his idol. Kobe had scored 81 points in an NBA game. He meets his idol and then he beats him out for the ESPY. So that's awesome. What a great story. That's a once in a lifetime thing as the coach. Yeah. 
Hey, let's go backwards. And thanks for sharing the story. It's a great story. We'll put the links to it so people can find that. Sure. Let's go back to, you know, Jim. So Jim's in high school. And then how did we get on the path to, hey, I'm going to get into, you know, the athletic world. I want to be a teacher. I want to teach because I know you got your master's degree in physical education. Yep. Let's go back in high school. You're raised in a family. Were you a sports? Were you a jockey? You no, know, very sport family. I was the oldest of six children. I had three brothers and two sisters. And my dad and my mother were both educators. My dad was actually my physical education teacher for some of uh, my high school and also my high school basketball coach. So he's the one that I really wanted to follow in his footsteps. Now, when I was young, I really got into basketball and I got pretty good. I wasn't great. But of course, in my mind, it was better than I thought it was. And I wanted to play high level college basketball, which didn't happen. In fact, I ended up playing one year of college and ended up getting cut, which was pretty humbling, but it helped me. But then I really had a drive that I wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps and be a teacher. And I coached a lot of things, but basketball is my love. I was a head coach for 30 years at four different high schools. So I ended up really pursuing that. And although I kid, my dad, after I played for him for three years, after that, he went into administration. So none of my brothers got the pleasure of playing for him. And I said, I probably wore him out. They said, like, <laughs> he went into something else. No, it's interesting. Like I said, you had 30 years of doing it, and I think 428 victories, career victories. So you obviously got a lot of enjoyment, fulfillment that came from the coaching, and there was a bit of a learning curve to it. How did you move from coaching into leadership or to see the role of leadership? Because I know you speak to organizations and companies yeah. and others, and we understand coaching because coaching is a skill set all to itself. Then there's managing, which is another skill set to yeah. itself. And I'm not talking about team managers. We know what that's about, but in right. managing. And then we've got yep. the role of leadership because not all coaches are great leaders, but they can be. And yep. we, we've actually seen some really great coaches you know, at the college level, collegiate level who are been terrible leaders. They fouled out, right? So those don't go hand in hand. How did leadership come into play here? I think there was a, I'll start with the, the first story. At 25 years old, I became a head coach at a high school about 20 minutes where I grew up. And I really thought I was going to, the program wasn't very good, but you know, my mind, I had been a successful JV coach, which is the lower level. Uh, I thought I'm going to turn this program around the first season. Well, I did such a great job. I led that team to 17 consecutive losses. And then the administration decided not to renew my contract. So I was pretty humbled. And that's what woke me up to the two things. I always talk to people about turning your setbacks into comebacks. And so one of the things that helped me is it really gave me a burning desire that never went away my whole coaching career was that I was going to prove I could be a successful coach. And number two, it really opened my eyes that, you know what, coaching, you know, because when I first started coaching, I was so into the X's and O's and what's the new play and how to teach a fundamental. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. But exactly what you're talking about, I wasn't a leader. I was just a coach. And I decided, you know what, if I want to build a program and build a culture, I got to understand leadership. And so that was where I started. And I still, to this day, I've been retired from coaching for this is my eighth season out, yet I still love leadership. I read all the time. I listen. I talk to a lot of different leaders and we have a podcast, but I talk to a lot of people like yourself and just trying to soak it all up, be that sponge. Because to me, great teams that are consistent it's usually because they have great leaders and that are consistently bad, usually have bad leaders. That's where I think it really always starts. And, you know, it certainly goes over to the the business world very much. You know, leadership is essential there. On any team or organization that you're trying to run, leaders can really be huge. 
And so it just became a fascination. In fact, you mentioned I, I do a lot of leadership talks and that kind of got me into the business world. And one of my talks, I share inspirational stories like the JMAC story, but I also talk about seven keys to being an effective leader. And this really helped guide me. And now I try to guide others on how to be someone that people want to follow because you're really a leader if you have people following you, right? And there are certain attributes which make us want to follow them. Like we've seen yes. failures in leadership and sports is a great metaphor. We see lots of things like, I remember 9-11 when 9-11 happened, and you lived not too far from the area, and yeah. then Mayor Rudy Giuliani steps up, and nobody expected it. Here's his former prosecutor, and now the mayor, and he became America's mayor. And without getting into the politics of it, but definitely saw him fall from grace over the last number of years. Yeah. And you're like, what happened? What a legacy to have, and what a disappointing legacy, because it's, yeah. you know, just with his, his own character and his attributes, right? Okay. So if we were analyzing the fall of leadership or the perils that can befall a leader in an organization, arrogance obviously is one of them, ego is obviously one of them. Anything else that you see there? I think the real big thing, you hear a lot about it, but I don't know how many people actually consistently present, you know, in, in that mindset of a servant leader, right? And I think for that period of time when 9-11, Rudy Giuliano became a servant leader. Unfortunately, he didn't stay that way. He did a lot of things that showed that he at least for that period of time, cared about the people. You heard that he went to numerous funerals and all these positive things that he did. And he was the face of New York City and that kind of thing in a positive way. But where his fall was is you just got to the point where you didn't think he cared about people anymore. And I think that's when you don't put the people first. And one of my keys in leadership is building trust. And one of the things I challenge leaders is do you have a trust plan? Because I took over four basketball programs that all were losing. The first one, as I mentioned, was a disaster. But the other three, we were able to turn it around in a fairly short period of time. And the big thing I taught my staff is we have to, because when you go into a situation as a new leader, and often when you're a new leader, it's because things aren't going well. Sometimes you can follow a successful leader, but more times than that, it's usually because things aren't going well. That's why they change the leadership. And so when you're doing that, is you got to figure out how can I build trust? And I talk about a three-point plan that we did in building trust. And one of the things that I, going back to your point with Rudy Giuliano, is he really started to lack, which one of our keys is, are you consistently aligning your words and actions? Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, then people are going to say, I can't trust this person. And when they can't trust you, it's very hard for you to yeah. leave they don't want to follow you or you want to get the wrong people. I'm not a sports analyst. Matter of fact, I was never your last guy picked on a team in sports in school. I was always your second last guy picked. And I was your bonus player. So you can have Vickers too. And both my brother and I were like, hey, you can have them both and, and whatever. So our, our dad was in the service and we traveled a lot. So we just weren't able to play the sports and concentrate and didn't have the good leadership. But we've always maintained, at least I've always had the thought, and I'll use football. I've always thought if you have it, you need a quarterback. If you got a quarterback and you have a good coach mm -hmm. you can win the whole thing yeah so that started me thinking about the players on the team and i remember the edmonton oilers hockey team when gretzky played gretzky was the treasure right yeah 
And his value to the team wasn't him so much. It's what he did to all the other players on the team. Everyone played up. So as a coach and as a leader and working in that, you had to do some navigating. When you started moving from losses to the victories in the column, is that an accurate statement? Is it more to do with the coaching, with the players executing on what they're being coached to? In other words, can you take an average group of people and can we make them better with coaching and good leadership? I think absolutely. I think there is certain ceilings in this fact that you want to have the best talent, whether it's business or sports or anything else, right? The more talent you have, the higher the ceiling. But where the difference is, I think people that are great leaders, they can take people that have maybe a little bit lower ceiling of talent, but two things, they synergize that group of people. So the whole is greater than the sum of parts. And number two is that they are consistently trying to focus on improvement, trying to get a little bit better, that little acronym, CANI, constant and never-ending improvement, that 1% rule. You've heard all those things, but I think those are the best people do as leaders is the little wins day in and day out starts to now get bigger and bigger, and now you get into big wins. So I think as a leader, and I always emphasize, I know this is something that people have heard all the time. I just see so many leaders struggle in this. Are you the example that people want to follow? And I'll give you a quick story on that, Michael. During the J-Max season, that was the first time we ended up winning our first championship. And you know what I realized? Because I had a lot of winning seasons before we won our first championship. One of my keys is lead by example. What I realized, I did a lot of self-analysis. Unfortunately, I didn't figure it out quick enough. But during Jason's year, when we had so many difficulties, I said to myself, I got to be the rock. And that's what I think leaders, when you got to be the eye of the storm. You got to be the strong person when adversity hits and because they're going to feed off you. And what I realized is through those postseason tournaments where we got so close, but we kept losing in the semifinal game is I was a different person. I didn't handle adversity as well as I did during the season or the offseason. I would snap at players. I wasn't as positive. And I made a pact with myself during the Jason season. I said, no matter what, I'm going to be the rock give you two quick examples. We get to the semifinals, Jason's magical year. We're up by 10 points at halftime. We blew the entire lead. We're actually losing the fourth quarter. The old me, I would have lost it. I would let him have it. You know, you guys are losers, you know, all that negative stuff. But at this time I was the rock. I said, guys, we're good enough to do this. We got to hang tough. We got to be together. And they responded. We ended up winning that game. Then in the finals, we go in the arena, and in our championship game, we play in arenas, usually about 10,000 people. But for a championship game, we're not a basketball hotbed. We usually get four or 5,000. We walk in the arena for the championship game, we have 10,000 people. It's sold out. First championship game I ever coached. After four minutes, we're down 13 to three. Again, how did I handle that in the past? Not well. And again, my kids would get all tight. This time I was the calm. I say, hey, we're okay. Hang in there. And well, what do we do? We come back. We rally. We win at the end of the game and win our first championship. And the crazy thing is it was such a great learning experience because those leaders were trying to encourage to keep getting better and learn from both positive and negative. In my last 11 years, Michael, after never making the finals, we made the finals eight times and won six. And a lot of that had to do was just making some changes to realize that we always used to tell our players, but I was forgetting as a leader, you are always on stage. People are always watching you, whether you believe that or not, that's true. And that's a huge thing is how you handle both the positive and the negative are going to be something that's going to be really powerful in helping the people that you're leading. 
This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with coach Jim Johnson. Well, it's interesting. And you watch the stories and like we've all seen Bobby Knight and we've all seen where coaches have lost it because there's a lot of pressure on them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because of that pressure, it makes people make some bad decisions sometimes. Yeah, It sounds though like the role of the coach, the role of the leader is really, and I'm curious in your thoughts on this too, I've always believed it's to protect the confidence of our players. Our job as moms and dads and husbands and wives and leaders and corporate executives and whatever is to protect the confidence of the people we have working for us. And so even with our own children, I would never berate our kids. Have I? Yes. You know, have I, have I, I wish I could take back some things for sure. You're frustrated in the moment and I wish I could be a parent now, right? How do we protect the confidence of the different players? Because you obviously have players from different economic groups, different areas, you've got everything all in one place. What did you do as a coach and as a leader to protect the confidence of your players? And how can we use that in today's world? Yeah. So I think the really important thing that I learned I want to share with your audience is that you got to get to know your people because you want to be fair, but that fair doesn't mean you treat everybody necessarily the same. And mm-hmm. I think that's hugely important. I'll give you a quick illustration. There's some kids during practice If they made, especially what we call a mistake of effort, they didn't play hard. I could get on them pretty good and they would respond, but that's because I got to know them. There's other guys I knew that I would always correct them, but I might not raise my voice because they couldn't handle it. So getting to know your people and also I think you see a lot of this, especially with virtual, there's different challenges, but are you consistently doing like one-on-one check-ins? Even if it's just three or four minutes and asking simple question like, how are you doing? What's going on in your life right now? How can I best support you? And also with your leader, like in my case, my leadership team was my assistant coach and my three, usually I had three tri-captains. We had a leadership meeting every week. And when I first started, it was all about coming in and sharing all these ideas. And probably my last 10 to 12 years, it was all about coming in with questions. And I think the best leaders are asking questions. And so I come into the leadership meeting and I'd say, all right, tell me how the chemistry is right now. What do we need to do to change this week to make it better? Is there anybody on the team that I'm not aware of that's really struggling, either at home or with school or, or just with their girlfriend, whatever? By asking questions in, you know, the old adage, but there's a lot of truth that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that's a really essential thing. Because great leaders build relationships. They care about their people. And the thing is, you got to be consistent. Like one of our trust bonds was we wanted to focus on catching people doing right and praising them specifically. We also talked about that you have to consistently 
correct when they make a mistake that you know you need to correct. There's human errors, like a kid misses a wide open layup. Okay. I'm not going to yell at a kid for that. I know he didn't try to miss the layup, but what we used to call is the double error. So Johnny misses a wide open layup. I'm okay. You know, I mean, I didn't like it. He missed the layup, but what really where I would get on him is if he walked back on defense because right. that's he could control. And that's where, you know, you talk about effective communication. You have to be very clear with the people you're working with is what are the standards and expectations, the core values? And then as a leader, are you leading with those? You know, like if respecting all people is a core, are you as the leader, are you respecting all the people? If not, then that's a core value you're not really living by. And that leads to the lessons that you've learned as a coach. You've provided, you basically have got a treasure trove of experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And you've shared some yeah. that fit with your face with adversity or setbacks or basically even your time on the court. I remember Michael Jordan, he didn't make his varsity team when he made his team. And then when he gets drafted by the Bulls, he wasn't a defensive guy at all. And I remember right. Coach Jack, first three years, it was like they were doing terrible. Yeah. And Coach Phil Jackson coached him to work, to your point, work on defense, hustle back, be a two-way guy, and often run and they go, right? Really, the coach and the leader can enhance the skill sets of the individual, encourage them. And like I say, it's finding that right approach to it. And we have to reprove sometimes and go, hey, you're being lazy. Come on, dude. Or, hey, you can get the next one. But it's protecting that confidence. Were there other lessons or what would you say were the most important lessons you've learned? You've already shared a couple that you learned from being a coach and your experience in 30 years. I think one of the things is developing a system so people have clarity of what you're trying to do and making it also attractive so that what we started to do because our program started to have a cycle of success, but we made it very clear to our players that playing on our pro program, we felt was a privilege and you'll really enjoy it, but it's not easy. Okay. We have very high expectations, but our players started to buy into that. For example, like when I first took over at Athena, they had been losing a little bit. And our first practice, we practiced six o'clock in the morning. And I got to admit that first team, they weren't real excited about getting up at six o'clock in the morning. But by the end, our team started to do so well that was, that was like a badge of honor for them, you know, mm -hmm. because there was no other students at the school at six o'clock in the morning. It was just us, right? So I think the, what you want to do is start to build off the success but also, I think it's really important as a coach that you consistently build challenges. Because when you start to develop consistency, because you see it so much in the sports world, but you also see it in the business world, that, or even the music world, right? The famous one-hit wonder. A team that gets to a championship, the Atlanta Falcons, they got to the Super Bowl. They blew a 28-3 lead. They have not recovered from that. And so it's interesting, how, but then there's other teams that are consistently there. And I think that's because there's real consistency with the process. People understand the expectations and they want to be part of it because they feel like they're cared about and they belong in the culture. And I'll tell you a quick story. So my last year, I ended up having a guy as a coach. You always have a dream, you know, any player ever playing the NBA. And my last season, I had a kid that was a pretty good player. The guy, Division One Scholarship, University of Vermont, which is not a big time school for basketball, but he had a great career. And he's ended up playing for three different NBA teams. He presently is playing over in New Zealand. But last year, he played almost an entire year for Golden State. But he came back in the summer. 
and myself and my assistant coach is now the head coach when I left. And, you know, he told me something that I was proud of peacocking because he said to my assistant, he said, the one thing that I thought I admired so much about Coach Johnson was I knew he cared more about me as a person than he did as a basketball player. And I think when you can get that with your people where they know that you really care about them deeply, that's pretty special. No, that is nice. You've spoken, Jim, about the power of the human spirit and the magic of passion and perseverance. How do you cultivate those qualities within the team, especially when you're faced with adversity or setbacks? Well, I think it's really important because you certainly want to cultivate because those are big traits as passion and perseverance. But I think the thing that I really learned is you got to make sure that you have clarity of what you're looking for to bringing the right people on your team. And we broke down some things. Obviously, basketball talent was one of that. But we wanted guys that were passionate about basketball, really loved it because we found people that were passionate were willing to do extra time to get better. We wanted what we called over me guys. We wanted guys that cared about the team first before their individual statistics. And so we really spent a lot of time with our guys, getting to know them and watching them in the off season, like in summer leagues and that kind of thing. How do they respond? Are they team? guys. And so that we were really cognizant of that. And then we had a test that we did in physical education that I thought was a great character test. It was called the PACER test. And what it simply was, it was a cardiovascular test where you were, I think we were 20 meters apart, running back and forth off a beep. And after every seven or eight lengths, the beep got shorter. So you had to run a little faster to make it. Okay. Yeah. And with that in mind, what happened is a lot of kids, because it was an easy out, because you could run like 10 or 15 whiffs and just drop out and because you know, it was a whole class running. Well, what I found is my best player, this Anthony I was telling you about that played in the NBA, he was six foot six, 220 pounds a senior in high school. He's a big kid. Yeah. And a really good score in that pacer test was about 80. Okay. Many kids did not get 80 or they didn't even try to get to 80. Anthony did 110. So to me, you start to see that's a character thing, that when he is going to do something, he's going to give his best. Because it, it sounds great that you, you know do your best, but a lot of people don't. So I think it's really important as a leader at getting clarity of what you're looking for to bring the right people on the team and also getting them on the right roles so they can succeed. And right. that's where communication is in talking to them. This is the role we see. Now, you could change, but you got to do certain things to change out of that role. But having clarity of expectations, clarity of what you're looking for in your team. Because there's some guys, they're not the right fit. And we all know whether it's a business or any kind of a team, if you got someone that's a bad fit and you allow that to happen, that cancer spreads and you're going to be in deep trouble. You have to vote them off the island sometimes. And that sets it up. You talk on motivation and inspiration and people have different feelings of motivation. And we have five generations of workers and people out there right now. You've worked with the younger generations and now with obviously the older generations. And when we look at motivation, what's the most common misconception people have about motivation? And how do you address that in your talks or your workshops? Because a lot of people think it's just fluff and, you know, for the meeting that we're in, but there's no sustainability to it. There's no meat and potatoes. And so motivation without substance is kind of useless. What's your take on motivation and how do we sustain it? 
Well, that's a great question because I've thought about it a lot because, you know, I brand myself as an inspirational leader, okay? And I think the difference between motivation and inspiration is that I think great leaders can inspire people to think bigger, think they can do it, you know, always be that beacon of hope for people. But motivation, the best coaches or leaders really understand that it starts by self-motivation. If that person's completely unmotivated for you to try to motivate them, I think that's a really difficult task. And yet people think I'm a great motivator. You know what? For some people, that motivation. Then the second thing I'll say about motivation, inspiration is that you really got to get to know your people. I mentioned before, like there were some guys I could really motivate by yelling and raising my voice. And there was other guys I had to whisper in their ear and say, hey, John, I know you can play better than this. I know you can play harder than this. And so really getting to know your people and what sparks them, what motivates them is very helpful. And then I think it's really living the message. I call it being, I think great leaders are what I call a chief storyteller. They really share good stories of both warnings and also inspiration, stories of hope. You give them both and so that you get them captured by these stories and get them to believe that if you do this, some bad things can happen. But if you do this, there's a great opportunity for you. So I think as a leader, you are always trying to inspire. You know, one of our phases we did we had a theme every week. For example, our first week, it was always attitude because that was one of the things you totally didn't control. And then each day I would share a quote, like one of my first quotes every year was, attitudes are contagious, is yeah. yours catching. And really get them to think about things that they can control and give them uh, words of inspiration. But everybody takes a little bit different. So I think as a leader, you got to make sure you understand that motivational speeches, they're good, right? But, you know, they don't motivate everybody. So that's why you got to get to know your people. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I always thought motivation. The problem is if you have some idiots working with you and you motivate them, you end up with a motivated idiot. And <laughs> so you be careful about that one. It's interesting to me. I remember watching a football game one time and it was in the Canadian League and it was with Calgary St. Peter's actually. We're in the Grey Cup. Okay. It was cold. It was snowy, you know, typical Canadian. Good passing game, right? It's an interesting yeah. game. It's a quicker game. Yeah. But I remember Calgary was actually up. So the St. Peter's were actually up in the game. There's three minutes left on the clock. The other team, and I think it was the BC Lions, British Columbia Lions, they've got possession of the ball and they're way down in their zone. They're like 10 yards out, but they started marching up the field and the snow's starting to fly sideways. And then they cut to the bench and they showed the Calgary players and you could see it moving from, hey, we're about to win the game in the Grey Cup to, oh, and you could see it on their faces, a total team transformation. They're all worried. They're concerned. And that might have been a good time for the coach to step up and maybe do something. But nothing happened. And they went on and ended up losing. Mm -hmm. And literally, yeah. that stuck with me because you talked about contagion. Yeah. It works both ways, right? Absolutely. It works both ways. Yeah. So you've got to recognize as a leader... And as you're building that team, those lessons translate, which the concept of teamwork actually extends beyond sports into all areas of our life, including business. Mm -hmm. What strategies from your coaching career can business leaders apply to create winning teams in their own organizations? Well, I think, first of all, you got to get clarity of building a, a team culture. I call it championship team culture. And I think the first thing with that, I, I know I'm being a little redundant, but I think it's so essential that I share is that you have to have clarity of how you're going to build trust. Right. And trust has got to be your foundation. I think you should have a real clarity of the mission 
of what you're trying to accomplish. For example, for our basketball program, we wanted to develop winners on and off the court. And then as the leader, I'm the CRO, the chief reminding officer. So I have to consistently live the mission and I have to share the mission of what does it take to be a winner on the court? You know, winning on the scoreboard is part of it is also being a great teammate. And we would really give illustrations. And then the same thing off the court. What does it take to be the best student? Someone that really contributes well to our society. Those are things we were trying to teach. So an overriding mission and living that is so essential in building culture. And you understand that the building culture is a daily practice. And so getting clarity, like, you know, I I talk to companies and almost every company has a mission statement. Almost every company has core values. Now, but here's the difference. Usually the successful long-term companies have a mission that everybody understands, buys in and knows the core values and they live it. And it starts with the leadership. Again, like just giving an illustration, if respect is a core value and then you see the leader treating people really poorly day in and day out, that's not a core value. Because they're not in those. And then the other thing is, no matter what, you know, going back to you talking about why do some teams really handle pressure really well or Mm -hmm. handle sales? What is because you as the leader, you put them in those situations so they experience. Easier said than done, but one of the things I really try to always share with our players, we wanted to make practice more difficult than the game. So we would do things like, for example, we might play a game where the best, you know, our starting team was playing against six guys. Now, they weren't going to do that in the game, but that made it harder. Or the first team um, had to play without dribbling. Okay, you would just put them in situations so that they could handle that. And also getting clarity, for example, in basketball is, are you practicing? What are you doing in, you know, in less than 10 seconds in the game and you're down one? Do they have clarity in what you want? Okay. And that has to be practiced. Same thing in a sales situation. If I, I just hire a group of salespeople and say, go out and sell. Probably not going to happen. You know, one or two might be extremely motivated and may have their own personal growth and they get good. But when you really get the team to help and support each other and help each other be better and you give them training, because you know the adage you say, well, if I train them, they'll leave. And to me, it's way worse if you don't train them and they stay. Yeah, no, exactly. I always say that with what happens if you keep them. Well, that's interesting you should say that because as a trainer and training literally thousands of salespeople over my career. Yeah never made the training harder than the actual gameplay. And for a big takeaway for me, light bulb just went off as you spoke that I just went, that's brilliant. As leaders and as sales leaders, how can we create drills and exercises that make it a little more challenging? You know, it's funny, I play men's softball in the summertime, so I'm in a senior men's league, but I work out literally every day. I'm working on the quads because otherwise you blow your quads out. I'm working on my hitting, my throwing, weights for strength, When I'm getting older, so it hurts more. I'm constantly in a state of owie and just it's constant. Glimpses when I'm fast asleep where maybe I don't feel anything but otherwise i'm always hurting somewhere (laughs) but that's a good point is make the training and your drilling and your practice more complex and complicated than what you'll actually face in game time situation you probably perform better i like that one that's great you've accomplished a great deal jim throughout your career looking back knowing what you know now what would you tell your younger self about the journey you're about to go on this question i've asked myself a lot so the, the biggest thing is that Early in my career, when I was in my 20s, even probably to my early 30s, I had no clarity of the famous Simon Sinek why. 
And when I got clarity, I really pushed people to get clarity about what their personal mission statement. I talked to them was a great question to consistently ask yourself, why were you put on this earth? And from there is I always ask them, what are your three most important core values? And then try to develop. It's going to take you some time and some thought and really what's most important to you. But when I got clarity, my mission statement is to be an outstanding role model that makes a positive difference in the world by helping others make their dreams come true. And I don't live my mission as best I could every single day, but I do get up every morning and go, okay, this is my mission. How can I set out each day to get a little bit better to try to accomplish that? So getting the clarity of who you are first, I think is so hugely important. And then the second thing is really thinking about how can I consistently serve and add value to other people? Because if you do that consistently, boy, you've done something really good in life. That's great advice. You know, my little one's a little simpler, but along the same lines, I ask myself every day, mostly sometimes I do forget, what can I do to be a hero to someone today? That's awesome. I love it. However, we can help them be an example. And I love that quote you had earlier in our talk. It's about we, not me. Yeah. And there's no I in T, you know, all the adages, they're there for a reason. And sports is a great metaphor for that. So, hey, Coach Jim Johnson, this has been awesome. For those who are out there that want to think bigger, lead better, and win more, first of all, a great book is A Coach and a Miracle, available wherever you get your favorite book. We'll have all your contact information and your website, coachjimjohnson.com. All of those details will be along with any of the links which we've talked about. Jim, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing with our listeners. And I wish you continued success. keep being the example you have been. And thanks for the memories. My pleasure, Michael. It was a pleasure and I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.